How can we nurture the imagination of urban youth and prepare them for a future that is designed in partnership with God? In this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Annie Lockhart-Gilroy, an assistant professor of Christian education and practical theology at Phillips Theological Seminary. Sherry Osteen talks with her about how we can spark hope and possibility in the future of urban youth and their communities by creating space for sanctified imagination. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Annie, thank you so much for talking with me today. It is my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Today, we are talking about your book, Nurturing the Sanctified Imagination of Urban Youth. And I would love if you would walk us into what sparked your interest in studying this. I did ministry for about a decade in a small city. So that was my context for a long period of time. I will say, though, that although each chapter in this text starts with a story, and although most of the stories start within a small city context, I also taught um, at an independent high school, which there is a story there that starts a chapter, and my own childhood starts a chapter. And I, I am not from an urban upbringing at all, as I like to say. I am pretty country, mm. as in... I got a cow for my eighth birthday kind of country. You did. I did. I want to tell my children that because they will want a cow for their eighth birthday. <laughs> I wanted one because one of the one of my friends in my neighborhood had one and I wanted one too. And you got it. That's amazing. <laughs> um, so entering into this environment, there was a lot that I had to learn. Um, it was not it it, it was not clear for me. It was, like I said, it, it, it did not form me as a child. It was not part of my upbringing. So it was a lot of information that I had to gather and to learn. So I had the opportunity of looking in my, looking at my ministry with a different set of eyes. Um, of course, being an insider because I was a part of the congregation, um, but being an outsider because understandings, language, all of those things were different from my own upbringing, not only not being in necessarily an urban setting, but I was also raised on an island. I'm from a um, from the St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. So the culture is different. So you're also looking at West Indian culture versus U.S. Um, American continental culture. So, so going into those experiences always tends to open one's eyes in a particular way and they tend to see things that others who have been swimming in the culture they're in life their entire life don't necessarily see. Yeah. So you entered into a into urban ministry in a small city. So mm-hmm. can you describe what you started observing as kind of this an outsider coming in, so to speak? Yeah. So it was interesting the conversation about um, what I would describe as how great this city used to be. And again, this conversation does not only apply to cities, but it takes on a different feel. So there are a lot of empty factories in the city, right? Yeah. City used to be a great. Um, factory city that would produce a lot of things. And we hear this story from right across the country of 
these empty factories, empty spaces that used to employ a lot of people, one could work at these factories and achieve a middle-class lifestyle, mm-hmm. not necessarily with a college education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that was no longer the case. And one of the things that was the most striking to me is that there were a lot of revitalize um, conversations. And those conversations tended to be about going back to the way the city used to be. Mm-hmm. There was some conversation about how to move forward and what are some new things that are happening? What are what are new things other cities were doing? Um, how could we imagine some changes? And those conversations would go forth a little bit and then it would get knocked back to, we need to bring factories back. Um, we need to bring this back. Remember when this particular space was booming? We need to do that again. Yeah, so right? it's kind of like this this longing to bring back the economy which was manufacturing, and then the right. thing that came along with that. Yeah. Um, and I call that in the text a crippling nostalgia. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, it's, it's the idea that you are looking back so much that you are unable to move forward. What you want to do is go backwards. And that is the actual desire to go back, right? Yeah. Um, and like I said before, this is not unique, right? Even on um, the island that I grew up in, there is one major employer, an oil refinery that closed for a couple of years and sent the island into economic chaos, mm-hmm. right? And employed a majority of people. And we see this in um, small towns when factories go out of business. We had the conversations about coal mines, right? Yeah. And I think what makes the small city a little different is that it doesn't have the same cultural myth as the small towns, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have the great, the, the cultural myth of the small towns being quaint, right? Mm-hmm. Salt of the earth people, hardworking folk, right? Mm-hmm. Folks who are um, worthy of help because they will help themselves, mm, right? This bootstrap mentality. Yeah, um, that they don't need a handout, but they, but you know, but stop discrediting them in some ways by taking away these jobs, right? Mm-hmm. What they need is just jobs, and, we, and all of these factories leaving them taking away these jobs. And then there's the myth of the big cities where it's a bright-eyed, bushy tail, right? I keep imagining that movie scene of someone from Kansas getting off the bus in New York City. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the clouds part, and they're in a musical or something. Right. You know, it's beautiful. It's fabulous. Um, you know, they're going to Broadway. Mm-hmm. They may get robbed, mugged on the way, but you know, they're, yeah. <laughs> they're dealing, yeah. you know, they're dealing it's with hardship, it. But it's worth it for the glamour. Right. Um, so we have our myths for middle America and we have the myth of the big city, the New York, the Chicago, the LA, right? Yeah. It's beautiful and glamorous. Um, and we don't have those equal myths about small cities, right? There's no, there's no great, like, I just can't wait till I can move to a Baltimore or a Newark, Camden, Trenton, Tulsa, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and so those, so then what you have is this ongoing story of, even though it's the same underlying problem as small towns, 
they're crime infested. That's what you focus on. They're drug infested. And it's not that they need jobs as a mythical, beautiful small town does. It's there's something wrong with the people. And what I had to walk very carefully on (laughs) is I don't think it's about the people, right? So I think even though urban is very clearly in the title, I think there's a lot to be gleaned from those who don't do urban ministry. Um, Because I don't think it's in the people. Like, I don't think that's where all the problem lies. There's lots of systemic racism and classism and and all of these different issues that people have to deal with, Mm -hmm. right? And at the same time, as we push for um, government and many other things to do their jobs and help these people, we do that realizing that that's what they should do, but I'm not holding my breath that help, that help is coming because I, I see enough of the coded language that is used that when help goes to these small city areas, it's automatically a handout. It won't help them. When help goes to farmers or you know former coal miners, then it's aid. It's an or an investment, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I'm not blaming them for their own oppression, but I don't. I'm not going to hold my breath that help is on the way. Can you talk a bit about your decision to use the word urban? You point out in the book that there's some tension in even making that that choice because the word urban can be coded. Can you talk about your decision about whether or not to use the word urban? Yeah, I mean, I went back and forth, um, you know, titling is not my strong suit. And as many of your readers should know, titling is also not always the decision of the author. Mm. Um, But the, so it's published through Urban Loft Ministries and that is their focus, right? And this is part of the Urban Youth Series. Um, And a lot of their titles have either urban or in the city, Mm. right? Um, and I chose urban specifically because, um, in the city also gives a different connotation. Um, most of the people that I'm speaking about are black and brown people. Right. Um, so that is often what we think of when we think of the term urban. And my goal in using that term is to say, you know, here are the various ways that these people are just like other folks and other types of folks that we mythically think wonderfully of, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but this word is seen as synonymous often with Black, right? Because even if we, if, I'm sorry, I think the first time I saw the term urban music and how confused I was mm. because... The person, I can't really remember who the artist was, but I knew that the artist was not born nor raised in a city. Huh. Right. So you're like, how is this an urban artist? Right. Yeah. Um, and then I learned that I was synonymous with Black. Mm-hmm. And while I don't necessarily think the term should be synonymous with Black, right? Um, the city is complex and diverse and has a variety of race, ethnicities, you know, socioeconomic classes, I do recognize a need for speaking about this term in a positive light. Look at the power that urban youth can have. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about what you, you were working in two really 
different contexts, this private mm-hmm. school and a congregational ministry context. And you observed some pretty sharp differences in what you call the imagination of young people or the way that they envision their future. Mm-hmm. Can you break that down? Yeah. Um, what they saw their future to be. The youth in the independent school where I taught as a college prep school, right? It is expected that everyone go to college, um, not even just to college, but to a good college. Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, that adjective is often thrown in there. <laughs> you know, they every student has a college counselor that walks with them, that, you know, gets to know them, talks about the types of college that works. There's a, you know, a growing list of colleges. Um, these days that are seen as the right college, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then college is meant to provide, you know, give them, provide them for their future, wonderful, successful life, right? Um, and the right college, the good college is important because it's not just about an education that one gets, but it's about the connections that one makes. So when speaking about One's future in that context, it is this like bright, rosy, in some in some senses, future um, of I'm gonna do, I'm gonna go to college, I'm gonna have this career, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, right? Yep. Um, in the urban ministry setting that I was in, and this particular program, which, um which was designed for at-risk youth, which I put in quotation marks and just define what at-risk means. Mm-hmm. Um, that they were taught to be more realistic, so to speak, right? So I talk about different language jargon. What, so, what does it mean to be realistic about your future? Right. Well, there's, there's a particular wrong that one should reach for. So the difference in language jargon, for example, is you know, the independent school kids talked about careers, urban kids talked about jobs, right? Um, In the summer, independent school kids talked about experiences that they would have in the camps that they go to and the conversation for urban kids about like, what what do they do to spend their time and get out of trouble, you know, stay out of trouble, Mm -hmm. right? It could be doing very similar things, but what is latest to what you are doing um, was seen as different. Right. So on the one hand, you're either you're building a resume or you're avoiding trouble. That's a very right. different framework. Right. And you could be at the same camp. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and also I talk about, you know, like what were some of the what was the difference here? And the Alto Easy answer is socioeconomic class and how my independent school kids talked about these bright futures almost as a birthright. Mm -hmm. And if that is the case, what then was the birthright for the kids I was working with in the urban context? And what I saw was simply a perpetuation of the current class structure. Can you tell the story you wrote about Maya Angelou's experience at graduation? And I thought that was a really concrete example of this. Can you can you tell that story? Yeah. So in her uh, autobiography, I, I Know Why the Cage Word Sings, she writes about her eighth grade graduation. And 
she talks about how her town was all of us, right? She lived with her grandmother and her grandmother sewed the dress and the dress was gorgeous and everyone was excited and she was talking to class and I think she was sitting up front or on the stage or something, right? Um, and people were just fabulous. This wonderful thing was happening, right? Graduation of their students. And there was a speaker that came, um, I think he was an elected government official and Maya Angelou growing up in the 40s, right? So this is this is segregated mm -hmm. schooling. And this elected official come to talk about, you know, the great changes they are making in, in the education systems in this particular place. And he talks about how the school, the black school, um, had just paved over their playing areas and they had a new gym and, you know, and he talked about their heroes like uh, Joe Lewis and such. And when he talked about the white school, he talked about their new labs, um, their new learning facilities, right? And when my uh, Angela describes that, she talks about how the joy was just taken away from that space. That this is a group of people that when people talk, there are amens and yes and lovely, right, responses. And when the elected official starts to speak, there's some of that, but then that quiets down. Um, and as Angela reflects, she talks about how that official had just placed a bar on them, right, that he made it very clear that the white students got to be scientists and doctors and all these other things, and the black students got to be athletes, you know? And she states, you know, there are, there are certainly athletes in our community that are heroes, but we should get to decide that. He shouldn't get to decide that's all we can be. So she talks about how lull, how just dull this place felt and how they felt so depleted. And then the valedictorian gets up to give his speech and he starts quoting Hamlet to be or not to be. And she's sitting there going, why is he doing this? You know, it has just been made very clear to us that we are not to be. Hmm. And he talks about, she talks about how the valedictorian, I don't know if it's, I don't remember if it's in the middle of a speech or towards the end, that he starts to quietly sing the song, lift every voice and sing. Um, also known as the Black National Anthem, which would have been known then as the Negro National Anthem. And he starts to quietly sing. And, you know, this is a song that they all know. And the one of the teachers who was overseeing music gets her, her group to sing along, right? And by the end of the song, everybody is singing. Their joy is back. Their um, their feeling that they can indeed overcome is back. And I talk about that as an example of um, a freeing education that, that does look back, not in a crippling nostalgia kind of way, right? I talk about the idea of Sankofa, which is a Western African idea of um, looking back but moving forward, right? that you have this historical imagination, as Poquilon would call it, that you remember that people have been here before and have overcome these obstacles that's been placed in their way. And yes, there are 
people, stories, myths, coded language, all sorts of things that are meant to put you in your place or keep you in a particular place or lane. And there are also resources, um, strength, right? Spirituals, ancestors, um, great power from one's own history and history of their people that reminds them that they don't have to listen to those people putting limitations on them. And in fact, what they are saying is a lie, right? Because you have no God-given limitations you know, on you in that way. Yeah. We have limitations, of course, right? Like we can't fly and things like that, but we can achieve things that other humans can, can achieve. So we know that one's zip code can often tell us um, variety of things of where they will end up 20, 30 years from now. We also know that it does not have to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. That idiosyncopa is helpful, right? It's, Mm-hmm. A relationship with the past, but not one that's defined by nostalgia, as you put it, um, but one that is future oriented. Right. And it's a it's a critical look at history and using different thoughts and processes that were used and not simply looking at products. Right. So I think that a crippling nostalgia looked at products. This is what we had. But it doesn't necessarily look at the process of how you got there. I mean, factories were new at one point, right? So it was imagination that got us there. Um, so, but Sankofa asked us to say, okay, so what exactly are we trying to bring forward? People also talk about imagination about the future as though imagination is fantasy. How do you think about that in the future orientation as not being fantasy, but something that's less abstract? Yeah. Um, I do separate a little bit uh, imagination from wishful thinking, right? Um, You know, wishful thinking can give us some sort of release for a few minutes, right? So I could talk about how great my life will be when I win the lottery, um, even though I don't play. But, you know, how great it could be if I struck oil and what I would do with, you know, a couple of million dollars, right? Um, That is wishful thinking. That's not going to happen. Even if I did start playing the lottery, there is, that's leaving it up to chance. There is no plan, right? Um, Imagination is different because imagination is the beginning of, the beginning of something that can come into fruition. So, Every thing that we see starts with an idea, right? And along with nurturing this imagination is also nurturing ways to make our ideas come into fruition, which goes along with learning ways in which other people have made their ideas come into fruition in the past, how they make their ideas come into fruition now, right? Um, providing folks with a variety of resources, you becoming a resource in and of yourself. And one of the reasons that I picked imagination is because I do believe that um, that it is a natural gift. I think it's something that is often innate in young people, right? So we don't have to give young people an imagination. They have an imagination. 
In fact, young people tend to have an imagination much more so than older adults because they haven't had, you know, um, real life in quotation marks, you know, pressed down upon them, right? Killing hopes and dreams. Um, But they still see the possibilities of what could be. So it doesn't need to be given to them, but it does need to be nurtured. And more often than not, I think that it's not nurtured. It's kind of um, pushed out of young young people. Yeah. So imagination is a possibility of what life could be with ideas of how do we get there. Now, for some, they could say, well, there really isn't um, a difference, right? Because um, you're talking about you know, breaking down socioeconomic class systems, like that is not going to happen, right? Is it, is it unrealistic? Are you just, is this visual thinking? Is this like, you know, what is this? Um, And I would say that it is as unrealistic as, you know, a group of people under monarchs deciding that they were going to free themselves from that and govern themselves. It is as unrealistic as the slave knowing that one day they will be free and their children will be free. It is as unrealistic as any historical um, story, person, representation we have that said, this way that we exist is wrong. There is another way. And we have seen the world change. So we know that it can happen um, and it will happen. The the thing is, how involved will you be in the change? I'd love to return to the particularity of the small city um, because you you talk a little bit about the biblical character Hagar um, Mm -hmm. to, to really explore some of the particularities of the small city and you use um, the imagery of wilderness and how that's significant because the wilderness isn't just one thing. And that's mm-hmm. really, can you talk us through that? Like you said, I, I focused on Hagar and Dolores Williams's treatment of Hagar and what she learns in the wilderness. But we also know from different biblical literature and all different types of literature through all the ages the wilderness is a popular motif, right? Yeah, I'm doing this interview during Lent. So for anybody on the liturgical calendar, we're in the wilderness, right? Indeed, yeah. Um, and there's several sides to the wilderness. One is that the wilderness is dangerous, right? Um, there's There's unknown things out there, creatures, um, a variety of things that that just basically is out to get you, right? This is particularly true in like fairy tales. Yeah. Um, when they, you know, go into the woods. The wilderness doesn't have always the necessary things that we need to survive. So in the Hagar story, when she is banished and sent out to the wilderness, um, she runs out of water and there's no food, Right. Um, she is afraid that her child will die. So she puts a child down and goes a distance so she doesn't hear her child wailing. There's nothing that she can do to provide 
for her childish mouth. The wilderness is a dangerous mm-hmm. place. The wilderness, though, is also a space for growth. The wilderness is a space for miracles happening where we see um, for Hagar, God appearing to her, providing for her and her child, yeah. right? Um, twice, right? Because Hagar had has two wilderness stories. We see the Theophanies as the uh, people of Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years, right? For that long period of time. We see the different ways that God shows up, miraculous ways. There is no food, manna rains down from heaven. The wilderness is also a space where one comes into their own being, right? So I think of the many um, stories in literature, the coming of age happens in that wilderness, hiking, right? Thinking into the wild Um, spaces. You get to know yourself in a particular way. There's something to having come through this wilderness experience, yeah. right? Um, also thinking of the second part of Little Red mm-hmm. Riding Hood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so wilderness is all over literature. <laughs> um, and using the Hagar story in particular um, helps me to talk about in many ways, either growing up in these in these small cities how it is wilderness experience for them in both the positive and the negative ways. And, you know, small cities can be dangerous, right? Um, Crime, drugs, gang-related activities. Um, There's often not enough resources to protect, um, provide education, right? There's a lot of danger there. And those dangers can be very real. Absolutely. And there is also a lot of hope there. There's a lot of people working to make these spaces better, right? So it is not just a horrible experience, right? Like, you know, I would tell people the work that I do, which was on mostly on the weekends at this particular city, and they'd be like, oh, wow, you know, like, aren't you awesome? And I'm like, there's some really good things happening, also happening in the small city that you were afraid of. Um, And this is not to say that, you know, that that the danger isn't real, but the wilderness experience is both. That is how that story helps me. And of course, at the end, realizing that, that God gives Hagar a new vision, right? She sees a well. And from this well, she is able to provide for her child. It is a beautiful, but still yet a simple provision, right? This water provision. And the child, you know, as the story goes, goes off and and becomes a father to a large group of people, right? Um, So there's something about planting a particular seed that allows someone to say, okay, now I can, I have what I need and I can move on to care for myself and for my kids and for my community. And I can move on to be great. Um, So I think those are a couple of ways that the Hagar story helps me think about ways in which we can foster this type of imagination with this population. That's a great segue. When you get really practical, you you talk about mentoring as one of the most significant aspects. Um, It kind of creates this rich soil where uh, the imagination that you're dreaming of can be cultivated. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about the kind of mentoring 
maybe share a story, a mentoring story that's been really impactful. I think one of the things to recognize is the importance of community. And one of the factors for community would be different mentoring experiences. And you're not thinking of like this top down, I tell you things because I'm old and wise, right? Right. I talk about bi-directional mentoring. So in bi-directional mentoring, you would have an adult, a young person working together, whether the goal is to plan a particular thing about their congregation, their community at large, but but working to get together to imagine something differently. And I think that once you do whatever that something is, young people can see how how imagining that we imagine this one thing differently and enact a change. We can imagine this other thing differently and enact change and then imagine this other thing differently and enact change, right? Um, we, we don't have to be stuck in the reality that we are in. And I think about my own youth ministry upbringing where there were different generations in the same room. You know, it was kind of happenstance of how that happened. You know, there, there wasn't like a young adult ministry. So people tended not to kind of age out. So there was like an intergenerational accident that happened? Mm-hmm. An intergenerational accident. And in this room were, you know, people like me who like grew up in the church, right? I don't remember a time that I did not go to church multiple times a week. Um, and others who were new to the faith. So there were many times when me as a, 14 or 15 year old, not only growing up in the church and it was a Roman Catholic congregation, but going to Catholic school, like I, you know, I was a very Catholic girl. So (laughs) that I could, you know, answer particular questions about Catholic doctrine as someone who was new to the faith, even though they were 10, 15 years older than me. And I talk about how that happened by accident and imagine the possibilities if that was done on purpose. It feels like it feels countercultural in a number of ways. Um, both this idea of almost a, a shared authority or um, the reciprocity that can be present in something like that, but also in your suggestion of corporate imagination, they both seem counterintuitive, especially in churches that where things can be pretty hierarchical. Yes. Some of the pushback that I get on this, um, because it's so, so countercultural, um, shared power with young people, right? And I recognize that that certainly the power authority, it lies with the adults. This is not an equal relationship. And in some ways that makes it tricky. But interestingly enough for me, there's a lot of conversation about intergenerational friendship. And in my particular understandings, I find that harder than intergenerational mentoring, bidirectional mentoring. That because friendship has less... Uh, structure or intentionality to it or yeah that there isn't from this isn't um necessarily a friendship I mean I've had great mentors in my life that it was a great relationship for that period and we achieved a particular goal um they don't pop into my mind first when I think about throwing dinner parties right um that that we can have working relationships with clear boundaries and understandings with people of different authority and power 
a little easier than we can have friendships. We do it all the time, right? Um, our supervisors and our boss have different power and authority than we do, right? We have those working relationships all the time. Um, another pushback um, of those of people saying, you know, young people can teach. I don't think they can mentor because mentor rely mentor requires a particular type of wisdom, right? It's another thing I hear a lot. Um, and I agree with that. However, I would, I tend to redefine and talk about the definition of wisdom. I think that young people have wisdom, right? Um, it's not the same. It's, it's not backed by, you know, the amount of dead scholars that we, you know, we, uh, academics like to quote. Freed of that burden. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, it's interesting to me to hear from young people, their ideas. Um, and sometimes it's um, their ideas that already exist, right? But there are these ideas that I've had conversations with young people and I'm like, well, that's Plato, right? That's Aristotle. You don't yet know that it exists, but how awesome is it that you had the same idea as Plato? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, if you hold Plato in high regard. Right. Right. So they don't yet know what exists. Right. Um, but then there may be some other ideas that tweaks it because Plato doesn't know anything about living in a small city. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't really know much about Plato, but <laughs> certainly not within the 21st century. Right. right. So it's they can have that same idea that's an old theory, but they're not thinking about it in that old theory way. They are already placing it in a modern perspective. Um, so we have this project together and we guide each other and we share wisdom with each other. And the other aspect of mentoring that I talk about, when I go into the etymology of mentor coming from the Odyssey um, and how Athena takes on the, the body and persona of mentor and talk about where where is the divine within this relationship. Okay, so I was not well-versed enough in mythology and I forgot to check with my 12-year-old who is very well-versed in mythology. But to catch people up who might be rusty on this like I am, you're talking about the myth um, where the word mentor comes from. Can you get us on the same page for anyone else who's as, as rusty as I am? All right. So mentor comes from the book, The Odyssey, um, which I taught as a high school teacher for a number of years. I am not a big fan of the book, but, <laughs> but I thought, oh, here is the purpose of me having to teach this book for so many years. And now it's you, useful to me. You used a small piece <laughs> of it nonetheless. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was actually kind of surprised that that is where the word comes from. But so it was the name of a character that Odysseus goes out to fight the Trojan War. And he has a newborn son, Telemachus, and, or Telemachus, depending on you know, how it's translated. Um, and he leaves Telemachus and his wife, Penelope, um, under the guise of his friend, Mentor, right? Just as anybody else who would leave and say, please look after my family, right? You're one of my best friends, care for my family. 
he goes off, he fights the war, everyone comes back, Odysseus doesn't come back, Odysseus wanders for a really, really long time. Um, Telemachus grows up into a young man, but mentor is always his go-to, right? Mentor has upheld his promise. He has cared for Odysseus's family. Telemachus decides that he wants to go find his, he's going on a venturing to try to find his father, I think. Um, and mentor accompanies him, right? So we have the accompanying and we have the caring for, the accompanying in one's journey, right? The advice giving, you see some dialogue between the two of them. And Athena, who is the goddess of war and some other things, who is also looking out for this family. When she comes to earth, she can take on different bodily formations, right? And she takes on the formation of mentor. And at one point towards the end, it's the scene that all my ninth grade boys liked. There's this big fight battle, right? Like this big fight scene um, where Odysseus, Telemachus, mentor, take on these suitors that has invaded Odysseus's house and trying to get his wife Penelope. And they fight him off. So then for me, I look at mentor Part of being a mentor is not only journeying with, but also fighting besides. Mm. So I, I, I do a lot of critical analysis with this character as a way of throwing on some flesh of this word. Because I find the etymology interesting. And when I first read that that was the etymology of it, I found that hard to believe, right? <laughs> and did some more digging. I don't quite know why I resisted it. Um, <laughs> I'm like, words come from what you name a character in your story, but you know, Sometimes. but I just, I, I find that yeah, intriguing. I, I'm curious if there's an example of somebody whose mentoring has been really inspiring to you as you think about the possibilities for this with young people. Um, there, there's a few. I have been lucky. Um, just, I, I have been graced with lots of mentors throughout my life, right? Um, there is a woman when I was in college, Dr. Blake, who, you know, who walked me through the first three years of college who's the director of the multicultural program and, you know, left the institution before my last year, but her guidance through kind of like allowed me to, to, to make it that fourth year without her, without her in college was a very difficult time for me for many reasons. You know, I, I mean, I spoke to her recently and just said, I would not, said I would not have made it through that experience without you, at least not this way. Right. So I may have graduated, but in far more of a broken way. So to survive in a somewhat healthy way, right. Comes from mentoring guidance you know, her fighting on my behalf, fighting next to me. And through different jobs and careers I've had, there's usually always been at least one person and many times more um, who reaches out to me in some ways and says, okay, let's get some, you know, let's get some understanding of what we want to achieve here, right? So I have been graced with some fabulous mentors. And what I've seen that is common between them, at least, you know, the, the good ones that I claim, 
it is a give and take relationship, right? At no point is it a matter of, I have the knowledge, let me pour it into you. It also is not, let me turn you into a mini me. It's let me get to know you. What do you want? What are your desires and goals? Um, Well, what do you think about this? Can we stretch it this way? Can we do it that way? Um, If you go along with me, then we'll keep going. If you pull back and say, absolutely not, then we'll go a different direction, right? What kind of student do you want to be? What kind of teacher do you want to be? What kind of scholar do you want to be? Those are the those are the questions um, that start that have started my different mentoring relationships. And then how can we broaden that? Right. So one of the benefits of a mentor is someone who has a broader idea, which is once again why I think bidirectional mentoring can work. <clears throat> because while adults have a broader idea because of their experience. Youth have a broader idea in many ways because they haven't had, you know, that imagination kind of knocked out of them. They have not, they can come up with an idea and not automatically have 10 reasons why it won't work. Yeah. When you talk about possibilities for young people, there are so many words connected with freedom, liberation, emancipation. So I think as we as we come toward the end of our interview, I'd love for you to talk about why those words you mentioned liberation theology earlier, um, but it seems like there's a particular resonance with young people, and I'm wondering if it's connected to that um, that sense of possibility. I mean, at the very beginning of our conversation, you talked about how sometimes language choice, even about the future, is limiting. Um, mm-hmm. But it sounds like pushing beyond that, you use a lot of this emancipation language. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think a lot of the ways that we use the language to talk about this population, a lot of the ways that we educate this population, um, the types of education that are in the schools and the offerings for them and all of those things. um, This is where I get really sad and um, I think it's oppressive. I think it's dehumanizing. I think that a lot of the shaping is made to put people within this particular race, socioeconomic class and geography in their place. Um, and it's, it's wrong, yeah. right? Um, so all of these language of emancipatory liberation, that's, that is what is needed when people are being oppressed and dehumanized. Um, and understanding that you can be freed of this, that no one gets to tell you where your place is and you can see things, as a friend of mine would say, through God-given glasses, right? Um, That there there, there there can be divine vision of your place being greater than what society says your place is. And I'm very careful (laughs) to use terms like greater, (laughs) right? Um, Because I am not suggesting that one career is better than another, makes you a better human being or anything like that, right? When I say greater, bigger, I mean being able to live into your vocation and calling without barriers, right? 
realizing the human placed barriers in your way of your divine calling. Like I said before, in a sense of seeing that, like, you know, in many ways, many of the students that I worked with, whether they were in the independent school or the urban atmosphere, they were trapped, right? Um, so you can be stopped of your divine calling by a family that thinks that your job, that job is beneath you, right? But whatever your trappings are, we need to help each other be liberated from that. And I think that's the, that's the benefit of bi-directional mentoring is that tapping into some of that youthful imagination, right? Tapping into that annoyance and anger you used to have that made you cry, that's not mm. fair. Before every adult in your life told you, well, life's not fair, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but tapping into that, like, er, it's not fair and it should be. And how do we make it so? I have right? an eight-year-old you can borrow for some of that. Right. And that's not oh, something yeah. that I don't necessarily think that we should beat out of them. Now, yes, we want to prepare them that life is not fair, but at the same time, recognize that it should be. Yeah. Right. Um, and we don't want to live in, you know, la la land. No, but right? you have the ability to cry out when things are unjust and be genuinely exactly. appalled when they're unjust. Exactly. I'm so grateful mm -hmm. for your time today and for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sushama Austin Connor. And I'm Sherry Osting. I'm Omar Peterman, and I am in charge of production. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. The Distillery is a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.